if you will, open your Bibles to Luke chapter 22. Um, the fall, as we know, has separated us from, from God, and it's also separated us from man. Uh, just consider what happened between Cain and Abel. Uh, communion, the, the ordinance of communion instituted by Jesus Christ, it's always been intended to be done together with one another as a public meal. And in Luke 22, we're going to read that Jesus actually celebrates the Passover with his disciples. Uh, so communion is going to give us the idea that it's a mutual celebration that we mutually participate in Christ. Uh, and that's why uh, Jesus, he's, he's your Lord and Savior, and he's, he's my Lord and Savior, but he's not exclusively my Lord and Savior. He's, he's our Lord and Savior. And that's important because it's, it's stressed that we have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And I think that's biblical. Uh, but a, a personal relationship doesn't mean it's in a, a, a private relationship. Um, last, last week when I spoke about the substance of the cross, which communion speaks about, the purpose the death and the burial of re and resurrection of Jesus Christ, it was not to take isolated individuals and perpetuate individualism. Uh, it was to bring us into a corporate body together, uh, into something that we share together. So this morning, going as far as I can, I want to begin to look at the pattern for the beginning of the communion ordinance that we we celebrate weekly. So looking at, at Luke chapter 22, I'm going to read from verses 1 through 20. And starting in Luke verse 1. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went in and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined a table, and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this, and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you, that from now on I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
and likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Well, Jesus has inaugurated the Lord's Supper, and he gave it to us after the pattern of Passover. Uh, Remember what Jesus said. He said that, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And remember, the main emphasis of the entire Bible is Jesus himself. Jesus said, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. So Jesus is coming as the fulfillment of Scripture, and it becomes clear that Passover, the Old Testament Passover, it actually pointed to something specific. It pointed to Jesus. Jesus fulfilled the Old Testament Passover in himself. So the Lord's Supper, or communion, being inaugurated during the Passover was very Intentional. It was not a coincidence at all. Um, the Israelites were to remember Passover as the time in their history when they were in bondage in Egypt and that the, the Lord delivered them with the ten plagues uh, ending with the, the death of the firstborn and then passing through the Red Sea and then passing through the wilderness and finally into the promised land. So we celebrate the Lord's Supper or communion after that temporal deliverance. Israel was commanded to keep this Passover perpetually. And in Exodus chapter 12, God said, This day shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations. So Jesus is at this particular Passover that we just read about. And he's going to show them that he is the true lamb. Even though they celebrated the Jewish Passover, which speaks of a physical and temporary deliverance, Jesus had a permanent and spiritual deliverance waiting for them. The Passover meals, as a Jewish tradition, and it still applies today, follows what's called a Seder. And that's a specific order of rules that the food is to be eaten in. And I want to begin considering how this Passover of Luke 22, which is the inauguration of what we know as the Lord's Supper or Communion and the New Covenant, how that may have roughly taken place with these Seder rules being overlaid and being applied. At family camp, Pastor Mike, uh, we were having a conversation and Communion was brought up in that conversation. He made a comment that he, he stands and he raises the cup at the, the ordinance, and it's very interesting. Because at the, the Seder meal of Passover, there would be four glasses of wine. And it would begin when the host, and in this case it was Jesus, would stand up, taking the first cup of wine, and he would lift his hand, but not in a toast. He would do it as a blessing. And this first cup is called the cup of sanctification. And he would recite a Hebrew blessing. And I'm not going to read it in Hebrew, but I will give it to you in English. It says, Blessed are you, O Lord, our King, our God, King of the universe, who has given us the fruit of the vine. And it's at this blessing, it's believed that this is when Jesus said what we read in Luke verses 15 through 18, where he said, 
I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer, for I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, that would be the first cup of sanctification, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. And for I tell you, for now on, I will not drink of the vine, fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. Well, it's after this, after this blessing that Jesus would give, that they would, he would perform a ceremonial hand washing that the Seder order called for. And that's called the Uhats. Um, but instead of washing his hands, it's here that we see in, in the book of John, chapter 13, verse 4, where Jesus, instead of washing hands, he rose from the supper. And he laid out his outer garments and took a towel and tied it around his waist. And then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel. And that, w- that was wrapped around his waist. And at, that, there was a, at this point, sometime during this point, an argument broke out between the disciples. A dispute about who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And if you look at verse 24 of Luke, you'll see that dispute. Well, Jesus' actions are in a direct contrast to this dispute that the disciples are having. Uh, They're arguing about who's going to be the greatest. Uh, But here, Jesus stoops down in a lowly task to wash their feet. And they're stunned into silence because of this. He's the host, and he's not even supposed to be doing this. This is a, a job for a slave. Um, John 13, verse 8, records what he said at this point. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And when Jesus washed his disciples' feet, he told them, and he tells us, I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. When we seek greatness in our life, through our careers or, or whatever it may be, When we seek preeminence, there's a real danger that we need to be aware of. And and there's a danger of neglecting others in service. And it's it's displeasing to the Lord. Jesus is saying that true greatness in his kingdom is attained with a servant's heart. But also Jesus is, this act of washing the disciples' feet, he's illustrating their spiritual cleansing that he had come for. Jesus has condescended. He has stooped down to wash theirs and ours' sins away. Well, this is the time when the meal after this blessing would actually begin, and it included bitter herbs, and these bitter herbs would be dipped into salt water. And when you eat bitter herbs dipped into salt water, it will actually make your eyes water. They'll tear up. And they did this because they wanted to be reminded of the bitter tears that they suffered in their bondage in Egypt. And then the host, Jesus, would take unleavened bread that had been prepared, the matzah that that we take part of. Um, It it would be in a bag, a single bag. But the single bag had three compartments to it. So the bread is actually in three parts. The first part of the bread in the first chamber is never touched, it's never taken out, 
It's, it's not even seen at the dinner. The second piece of matzah that's in this second chamber of this bag is broken in half at the beginning of the meal, and then it's put back into the bag, half of it. And then the other half of the bag is taken, and it's wrapped in a linen cloth. And they call this the afikomen. Uh, and it means he who comes later. And they would eat this at the end of the meal. They would hide it until then. Well, it's this third piece of matzah that they would take out of the bag, and they would actually use that to eat for the main part of the meal. And they would take this, and they would dip it with the bitter herbs into a mixture called haroset, which is a mixture of apples and spices, nuts, and it's all mushed together, and it's kind of thick. And they would, would take that, and it, it's to symbolize the mortar that the Israelites used in the construction of buildings when they were in bondage in Egypt. And then they would eat that. Then the host would take the second cup of wine. And that cup is called the cup of judgment. And it's speaking of the, the plagues that, that was inflicted upon the Egyptians uh, during that time. The frogs and the flies and all the other plagues. And after their meat, they had eaten, that's when the, the, the lamb would be served right after that, and then they would eat this meal at their leisure. You know, and, uh, but it was after that, that's, this is the time that it's believed, possibly, that when Jesus, he took that afikomen, that third piece of bread that was hidden away, that was wrapped in that linen cloth, he took that piece of bread that was wrapped in that linen cloth after the meal, and he broke it and he divided it among them. And he, this is when he said in verse 19, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Then the host, Jesus, would again take the third glass of wine. And this glass of wine is called the cup of redemption. And this is believed to be when Jesus said in Luke verse 20, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And after all this is completed, they would sing a hymn from the Hallel Psalms, and then they would leave after the fourth glass of wine was drank. And we read in both Matthew and Mark that they did sing a hymn, and that they did leave, and they went out to the Mount of Olives. So this was roughly the order of service of a Passover Seder meal, and possibly, possibly the order of events of the inauguration of the communion service that we celebrate but does it really matter? <clears throat> Do these Seder rules matter? No, they don't matter at all. Because again, at this particular Passover that we read about in Luke 22, Jesus made the topic of conversation about his death. Not about the death of a lamb that happened hundreds of years ago, he made it about his own personal death. Remember last week when I pointed out that Jesus, he did this a lot. Uh, and his, di his disciples, he'd been hearing about his death continually. And he brings it up again at the Passover. One of the most joyous celebrations in the Jewish religion. And Jesus spoke continually of the cross. You know, Jesus as a historical figure is not denied. In fact, the Muslims, they admit that he is actually the virgin-born son of Mary. 
And that's actually more than some Christians will admit who deny the virgin birth. There are some Jews that actually respect Jesus as well. They respect him as a reformer of Judaism, as a way of bringing the people back to God. The Hindus also have some respect for Jesus. Uh, they really enjoy his stance on nonviolence, and they think that he really attained a higher level of consciousness. So no, Jesus is a historical figure, is not denied. But as my point was last week, it's at the cross that separates the Christ, the Messiah, the one who died for sin, from every other Jesus that, that we see in history. And I remind you again of what Paul said about this. He said, the cross is folly to those who are perishing. So since the the order of the Seder doesn't matter. The conversation of this Passover feast and that happened in the upper room does have some practical importance for us. And we should notice them. So flip over into your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. <clears throat> Jesus takes these elements, these elements that are, are here in front of us this morning, the bread, and the wine as a way for us to commemorate a memorial service. And Jesus says to do this in remembrance of him. And we know that from the early church, it, from that point forward that he gave that command, it's confirmed in the book of Acts, that the church began practicing communion as a church ordinance. Acts chapter 2. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. We're looking at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, starting in verse 23. We read, For I received from the Lord that I, what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and we had, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And Paul says that he received this from the Lord. In 1 Corinthians, the epistle itself was written before the Gospels. It was written before the Gospel of Luke. So Paul didn't read the Gospel of Luke and think, that's a really neat thing. I'm going to quote that in my next letter. He didn't do that. Paul must have received the ordinance of communion by direct revelation from the Lord, just like the disciples did in the upper room. But continuing in verses 25 and 26 of 1 Corinthians, in the same way he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. So as a practical application, a practical importance of communion, it's, it's to look back, to remember, and to have a memorial feast, to ponder the substance of the cross in a practical way. Just as God said uh, to the Israelites about the Passover, it's to be a memorial throughout your generations. Communion causes us to look back as a memorial. Jesus never left a physical memorial. He didn't he didn't 
have us build a, a church on the, the, loca- the location where the Last Supper took place. He didn't say, build a giant statue of me so you guys can go and, and remember this, this thing that happened here. When, what he left us was a communal meal. And he said to do this in remembrance of me. And remembering what Jesus did on the cross, remembering the substance of the cross, it's important because <clears throat> you need to remember who bought you and who owns you. Uh, we need to look back. We need to recall. We need to think about what was done on the cross for us. The fact that he commands you to remember his death in the symbols of broken bread and poured out wine tells me that he values our thoughts. It's valuable and it's pleasing to him when we, as Isaac Watts said, to survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died. It should never get old. It should take our thoughts away from everything else. It should force us to focus on these elements, the bread, the wine, the broken body, and the spilled blood of Jesus Christ. It's a command to stop in the midst of life of ever, that, and everything that's going on with us. To forget about politics, to forget about work or school, to forget about whatever our problems happen to be, and to focus not on ourselves, but to focus on Him. And this is important because we live in a world that says, take care of number one. You're worth it. Focus on yourself. You do you. Right? Well, communion deliberately goes against those things. Uh, We live in a feel-good generation also. I'll go to church if it makes me feel good. I'll go to church if there's something in it for me. Worship, and that includes communion, worship is the highest activity that we can participate in in our entire life. Our worship is not a means for self-gratification. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We live to please Him, so we deliberately remember the past which gives us our salvation. But communion also causes us to look to the present. The past act of Jesus on the cross must be a present reality. Look again at 1 Corinthians verses 25. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is present tense, is the new cup in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This is where we are at this moment in the new covenant. It's not something from the past that we're trying to merely remember. We're not just thinking, oh, we need to remember how on that day Jesus was crucified. We must be presently mindful that this is a present reality working daily in our lives. The past reality, in other words, it has to have present consequences. We always hear of, of someone who, who lives in the past, right? 
I remember the good old days. There was a time when I used to serve the church. There was a time when I was busy and I was involved and God used me. And I was, I was doing amazing things. And I have to say, what do you mean there was a time? I hope, I hope for everyone here that there is now a time. This cup is, present tense, representative this cup. It's representative of the, the new covenant that we presently and actively live in. The past is not... The past is a guidepost. It's not, it's not a hitching post. We don't stay there. We don't just look back and think it was good at one time. God works in your life, not just in the past. He's working presently right now. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 through 20 says, Do you not, you, do you not know that you are, your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you are bought with a price. And we realize this in communion. Jesus bought me on the cross, and I'm experiencing it now presently. Communion lets me speak of the source of my salvation, the blood, the shed blood of Jesus Christ on the cross, the ultimate sacrifice. Last week when I I mentioned that there are some people that want to minimize that. They, they don't want to mention the cross. They don't want to talk about the blood. They don't want to sing about it in the hymns that we have. It's uncomfortable and it's unappealing. Uh, there are some pastors in some churches that are hesitant to preach on the, the blood of Jesus Christ. They're afraid they're going to offend somebody, that people are going to leave the church. This is not a problem just today. Charles Spurgeon That was a problem in his time as well. He actually commented commented on this very issue. Listen to what he said. There are preachers that cannot or do not preach about the blood of Jesus Christ. And I have one thing to say to you concerning them. Never go and hear them. Never listen to them. A ministry that has not the blood is lifeless. It is a dead ministry, and it has no good to anyone. The blood of Christ is still, present tense, still cleansing us from all sin. Well, additionally, communion not only causes us to to look back and to look to the present, but it also causes us to look forward. Look again at 1 Corinthians, verse 26. For as, you, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. When we participate in communion, we are proclaiming publicly. When we take our cup, we are proclaiming publicly that we believe the one who left us, we believe that he will be back again. Jesus said himself, I will not drink again of the fruit of this vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. The next time that Jesus takes of these elements is going to be with you in his kingdom at the marriage supper of the Lamb. 
There are those that when you say to them, Jesus is coming back soon, they get really excited. They're like, we can't wait. I wish it would happen now. And then there's those that when you say, Jesus is coming back soon, they say, that's great. I just hope he doesn't come back too soon. There's some things that I'm doing I really don't want him to see right now. Or there's some things that I'd like to do in my life before he comes. That's not the way we ought to be thinking. It's, that's living in dread of his return. It's not living in anticipation of it. Communion should always cause us to look ahead with eagerness. It reminds us that there's something outside of ourselves, something greater than us, that has changed our affections. It motivates us in an entirely different way than the rest of the world. And that's why we say, Lord willing, we're going to do this, or Lord willing, we're going to do that. Because in the back of our mind, we don't expect to finish our day without the possibility that he may interrupt it. So we come week after week, and month after month, and we receive these elements, the bread and the wine, which speak of the body and the blood. But does the bread speak of his body as though it's sitting across the table? No. It speaks of a body that was tortured, beaten. This is my body which is given for you. When he refers to the blood, is he is referring to the blood that's coursing through his veins? No. He says it's poured out for you. When Jesus said these things, he was about to be arrested, beaten, tortured, and executed. And that's what he wanted his disciples to understand. And that's what he wants us to regularly focus on, his death. The prominent thing Jesus wants his disciples, us, to focus on is the cross, the substance of the cross. And with all this said, the Lord's Supper is something to remember from the past, the present, and the future. The Lord's Supper, it's more than a memory. It's a means through which Christ comes to us. He meets and he communes with us. Malcolm McLean, he writes that the Lord's Supper is an occasion when the Lord Jesus feeds the souls of his people, thus making the meal a means of grace. And as a means of grace, it's, it's a redemptive grace and a, a sanctifying grace. It's also a personal grace. Back in Luke chapter 22, that we read at the beginning, verse 15 says, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. Not in front of you, with you. Verse 17, it said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. Verse 19, This is my body which is given for you. Verse 20, This cup is poured out for you. Jesus broke the bread and he said, Eat this. He took the wine and he said, Drink this. Breaking the bread is one thing. Eating it is another. 
Pouring the wine is one thing. Drinking it is another. Knowing Jesus died on the cross, intellectually, is one thing. Partaking in that death is another. And as believers, we must feed on the substance of the cross. The Puritan William Perkins said, Christ apprehended and received by faith shall nourish the believer and preserve both body and soul unto eternal life. Jesus himself said, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. John Wilson, he captures this saying very well. He says, Though Christ is not bodily present, yet he is really and truly present in a spiritual and invisible manner. He is present by his Godhead and by his Spirit. He is present by his power and efficacy, communicating and applying the virtue of his death. And thus we are really made partakers of Christ in this ordinance. We partake of the sun when we have its beams of light and heat darted down upon us, although we don't have the, the bulk and body of the sun put into our hands, so also we partake of Christ in the sacrament when we share in his grace and the blessed fruits of his broken body. In conclusion, it is God's saving action toward us and then our fellowship with each other in Christ, that in taking communion, we recognize what a great Savior has done for us. So communion, it's a visible sign of invisible grace. Amen.